0: Alright, so we're in Matthew chapter 5 this evening, we'll be reading verses 1-6, through looking at the fourth beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is God's word. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we have the tremendous blessing and opportunity of being here together tonight, gathered to hear the word of God. And, and that's what we pray we would hear tonight is is your word, the living and abiding word that would abide in our hearts and make us to be more like your son, that we would desire him more, that we would delight in him more, we would cherish him more, we would treasure him more. And he is worthy of all those things. But we know that in our fallen state that we cannot accomplish or achieve these things in and of ourselves. And so we pray for your blessing to be upon us, that we would walk Uh, in love towards your Son, abounding in the knowledge of the love of your Son, and that love for him, coming from his love for us, would spill off to others around us. Would you bless us, O God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, yes, uh, we're looking at the fourth beatitude tonight. Um, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And just by way of of recap where we've been, as we looked at the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In our first week together, we pointed out that Jesus here going up on the mountain is speaking to his disciples, that he's speaking to Christians. This is a message for Christians. The beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount is to be lived, is to be carried out by all Christians of all ages Throughout all the centuries until Christ returns. And so as we come to our text tonight, we want to keep those things um, in mind. Now I will say at uh, after we conclude our first point here in the sermon, we will look at and and tie together this fourth beatitude with the previous three and we'll see the interconnectedness there. And so we will get there, but just to, to put it in its proper context, I actually wanted to look at the verse first and then put bring it all together. So just uh, a little spoiler alert there. And then, in addition, uh, just a a division of our text tonight. We'll consider what the words uh, hunger and thirst mean, what the words, uh, or what the word righteousness means, and then lastly, what it means that they shall be satisfied. And then we'll end with um, three points of application. So, just there's our division there four points this evening hunger and thirst. Righteousness, satisfied, and application. So um, just by way of reminder, blessed. I'll let Zach and Anders pick this up. Uh, we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but blessed just means uh, joyful and the Lord Jesus Christ happy. Um, someone to be envied. And so since we've looked at that in previous weeks, we're going to, to move past that um, to, to those who are blessed, as the Lord Jesus describes them. And he says that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so what does it mean to hunger and thirst? And as I was, I was looking at this here, I just thought to myself, well, you know, of all the things that Jesus could have could have said here that probably failed to resonate with us as it would have connected with Jesus' audience, it's this hungering and thirsting because we live, in, we live in America. You know, we've got Taco Bell right down the road from us. We, we really don't, you know, if we're ever hungry, even when we were in college, we had the ramen noodles, right? You know, and so... <laughs> It may not have been a good meal, but it was a meal. We could, we could find food. We, we have water readily available to us here in, in this country. And so this, this uh, metaphor, this illustration that Jesus gives to his audience, I, I mean, I, I don't blame us, but I think there's a sense of disconnect of, of what it would have conveyed for his audience. And so I just want to you know, press into that and see if we can develop that to some extent. And so to hunger and thirst here is, is maybe another word we could use is desire. There's a deep desire and in fact, we might even say that there's a need here. Because the one who hungers and thirsts, hungers for food, thirsts for water, because they would die without it. So there's a need here. There's a deep desire. There's a longing. There's a need that needs to be met, that needs to be fulfilled. And so Jesus here is saying, in effect, that blessed is the one who senses his, his need, this this great longing and, and, and desire uh, that they have. There's this inner Um, desire within them that that presses them to action because if they don't find satisfaction to what they're longing for they're going to perish they're going to die without without food without water there there cannot be life for us and of course Jesus here is speaking of spiritual things and, and we'll get to that but he's he's saying that this hunger and thirst this longing within the person blesses the man who has this longing that provokes the person to action. They must take action. They they have to do something to find fulfillment, to to seek an answer or a satisfaction to that which they're longing after. And so this illustration that Jesus here uses is probably familiar to most of us. It's found throughout the scriptures. I wrote down three references here on my little piece of paper rather than flipping there, and I'll just read them to you, though you can uh, reference them yourself. But Psalm 63, 1. Probably a psalm familiar to most of us. It reads, "O oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. Here it is. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no drink. You, you have this picture here of someone who's craving something, and there's, there's nothing there. There's no resource to draw upon. He's in a dry land. There's no water. He needs water to survive. It's not there for him. The longing is there. The hungering and thirsting is there, but it's not being met. And so the psalmist here is crying out to the Lord, please meet this. My flesh is fainting for you. My soul is thirsting for you. Only you, O God, can satisfy this longing. Psalm 42, verse 1, an illustration taken from nature. Again, probably familiar to us. It reads, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God for the living God. There's this desire, there's this longing that has to be met, that has to be fulfilled, a thirsting that has to be quenched. The psalmist is crying out for that. Psalm 119, verse 20, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. There's this need, there's there's even this pain, there's an intensity, a fervency, an urgency here that has to be satisfied. That has to be fulfilled. That's what the Lord Jesus is describing when he uses these words, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I can't remember exactly when it was, but if, if you're following through the daily uh, Bible reading plan, uh, you'll remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, a vivid illustration that just it grips your heart. And it's horrifying to think that this could actually happen uh, anywhere in the world, but particularly amongst God's people. But in 2 Corinthians 6, in the northern kingdom, in the the nation of Israel, Ahab's on the throne, and the capital city of Samaria is under siege by the Syrians. So they're under siege. And what happens when there's a siege? There's a scarcity of material goods. So there's a description, even bird's dung is being sold for a high price. Everything is, is scarce in the city. And it says that Ahab's out walking on the wall one day. He's looking out over the enemies. He's looking in his city. And a woman runs up to him. And she says, help me. And he says, what can I do for you? And she says to him, I made a deal. I made a covenant. I made a a pact with my friend. And we agreed to kill our sons so that we could eat them. And so I killed my son and we ate him. But she's hidden her son from me. That's what's being described here. There's such a sense of longing, a basic need for survival, a desperation here in the words of the Lord Jesus that are pictured in that story. Now, of course, it's it's awful to think of the, the sinfulness, the wickedness of the people of Samaria that a mother would rather kill her child than die for her child. But just the idea that there's such a desperation that they were willing to kill their child to survive. And that's what these words contain here. There's this hungering and thirsting that that has to be satisfied. Basic for survival, without which we will die. Like air in our lungs, we have to have it. So the hunger and thirst here, that's what Jesus is referring to. In addition, it's not here in our translation, maybe in different translations, but the commentators have gone so far as to translate this verse as reading this way. Blessed are those who go on hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's this ongoing, there's this present experience of this of this longing. That it's it's there's there's this continuation that uh, uh, has to be satisfied. It, it, it doesn't end. And that's I don't know about you guys, but kind of disheartening for, for me to think about that there's this hungering and thirsting that we experience as Christians that, that demands satisfaction and there's a sense in this life in which we don't find that that satisfaction. But we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. But I do just want to point out two redeeming qualities that we have to keep in mind as we consider this this expression to hunger and thirst here. Because to hunger and thirst implies two things. It probably implies more, but certainly these two things. Number one, it, it implies that someone's alive. Dead people don't hunger and thirst. For someone to hunger and thirst, they have to be alive. And so... In a spiritual context here, we have to bear in mind that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to Christians who have been born again. They've been made alive. They've experienced, as we said in the first week, the miracle of regeneration. God has moved them from dead in their sins and trespasses to alive in Christ. They're no longer children of wrath. They're children of God. And so they're alive. And because they're alive, they're able to hunger and thirst. But notice also here that it doesn't only indicate uh, someone who is living, it also indicates the knowledge of lack, that there's something lacking in their life. Someone who has everything that they need, they don't hunger and thirst. For someone to hunger and thirst implies that they know they don't have everything that they need. And what's missing in these people's lives? What are these people who are blessed that Jesus here is describing as, as those who are to be envied, who are highly favored by God? What, what is it that they're, they're hungering and thirsting after? It's righteousness. They long for righteousness. So now we get to how the Beatitudes all tie together. This is what I was trying to get towards here. If you remember the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? Those who know that they lack righteousness. That God who is perfectly righteous and dem- demands righteousness of us knows. And we know, we understand as Christians that we don't have any righteousness. And so we sense our lack but notice here that the one who knows that they lack righteousness and then who go on to mourn for that lack, they're heartbroken over that lack. They, they're distraught over their sinfulness. They're meek because they see their unrighteousness and God's righteousness and what God has done to reconcile those two. And so like Zach said last week, they trust themselves to God. They're amazed by the goodness, by the grace of God that he would make those who are unrighteous, Righteous. And do you see what that does? That doesn't leave a person just mourning for their lack. It leaves them longing for what they need to fill up, to make up for that lack. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're not just content to sit there and say, I don't have, but thankfully God has given. No, because God has given, therefore I'm going to seek after all the more. They're propelled by the grace of God in their lives. And so we see how these Beatitudes are are working together. We have to realize that we have nothing. That causes us to mourn, that causes us to see God's grace, and causes us to seek him all the more. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. So that's the first point, to hunger and thirst, to long. It's it's a need that has to be met or we will die. And again, this is a spiritual context, all right? Hunger and thirst, spiritual reference here. So what does the blessed man hunger and thirst after? It's righteousness. It's righteousness. It's God's righteousness. It's God's perfect righteousness. It's not the world's righteousness like we talked about in week one. It's not a subjective righteousness that the world around us defines as good. Homosexuality, abortion, um, these hot-button issues that we're not supposed to, to talk about because we need to be politically correct. These things the world says are righteous. God doesn't say that those things are righteous. Righteousness is defined by what God says is righteous here in his holy and infallible word. That's what's righteous, and that's what's being longed for here. That's what this hungering and thirsting is after, this righteousness. But for uh, the sake of our study here tonight, I want to make a threefold distinction about this word righteousness. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you can put this down. I hope to see pens moving here. Righteousness was meant here by the Lord Jesus with regards to righteousness. It's likely that he intends two things, but I want to draw our attention to a third thing. Okay, so number one, positional righteousness. Positional righteousness. That's the first thing. Number two, there's this hungering and thirsting. There's this longing for practical righteousness. All right, practical. And number three, there has to be this longing and desire for the person of righteousness. All right, so positional practical, and the person of righteousness. So, number one, what do I mean when I say positional righteousness? Well, this is the word, uh, or this is synonymous with the word justification. So, we remember as we went through the book of Romans, particularly chapters 1 through 6, and we considered justification. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts to be justified, to be made right with God. And the blessing, the promise to the Christian in the gospel is that all who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation are made righteous with God. Positionally, they are justified. They are righteous before God. They are perfectly righteous. And that happens through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lives under the law, perfectly obedient to God. And so in his life, he achieves Perfect righteousness. And what's his reward? What does he earn with this perfect righteousness, this life of obedience? A coronation. A coronation of the cross, of the crucifixion. Because there on the cross, Jesus, again, in obedience to the Father, and perfect righteousness, takes the sinner's sin upon himself. He takes his people's sin upon himself. He takes his people's unrighteousness upon himself. And his people get his righteousness. That's what's being talked about. So there's a sense in which the Christian hungers and thirsts for the very righteousness of God, which is given to us through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Right? So first of all, positional righteousness, we as Christians are made right with God. And so our sins are forgiven and we're perfectly right before God. But as we can all attest to, though we are perfect before God through faith in Jesus Christ, we don't practice that righteousness each and every day in our lives. And so that's the second point here. And this is probably more the thrust of this passage here of what Jesus is speaking of. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is practical righteousness, that is to be more Christ-like to live more in obedience to the word of God. That's this righteousness, more than likely, of what Jesus here intends. Um, And so even though we are before God and in the sight of God, righteous and perfect, we don't live that out. Even the great apostle Paul, if you remember in Romans chapter 7, he says, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? That's the great apostle Paul, who says at the end of his life that he's the chief of sinners. So he experienced, the apostle Paul experienced what it is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He had a longing for righteousness, to be more conformed to Christ's image in his life. And it's not only to be conformed to the image of Christ. Like we talked about in the sermon a few weeks back, like John Owen said, there's this, there's this desire to be free from the bondage to sin. There's a desire to see sin put to death in our bodies so that we would no longer live, but that Christ would live in us. That, again, is the sense here. So we not only want to be more like Christ, we also want to be free from the old person who we once were. That's this hungering and thirsting. That's this need that is in the Christian. They have to become more like Jesus. Give me Christ or I die. And that's, that's what's being said here by the Lord Jesus. That's his intention here as he as he says these words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness to be more like Jesus Christ, who desire to live more like their Lord and Savior. And, and, and so we see here how ridiculous it is for people to say that you can have Jesus as a Savior who rescues you, but you don't have to take him as the Lord who reigns over your life. And I borrowed that, that Savior rescues, Lord reigns from Matt. Thank you, Matt, from a few weeks ago. That's, that's poignant, man. That's so good. Jesus is not only the Savior who rescues, he's the Lord who reigns. And and people who are born again, who've entered into the kingdom of God, who are children of God, they hunger and thirst for that in their life. They're not content to just have a get-out-of-jail-free card. They want to be more like Jesus Christ. They want to know him. They're willing to share in his sufferings, that they may also partake in the power of his resurrection. They just want to know Christ, and they count all things as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing him as their Savior and Lord. That's what Jesus is here is describing. There's something transformative that takes place in the person who's a Christian, who's been born again, who's entered into the kingdom of heaven. They hunger and thirst. They have to have Christ in their life. They have to have this righteousness. They long for it. They desire it. They're eager for it. They seek it. Without it, it's as if they'll die. They have to have it. And so as we look at this, this term righteousness, that's what that's what Jesus here intends. There's there's not only this positional righteousness, which we have as Christians. We're justified. Truly, we're perfectly righteous before God. But more and more, we want to live it out. And all of you who are in here, who have walked with the Lord more than a couple of years, have experienced this in your own life, how you desire to be more like Him. You're not content. You're so much more mature in your faith than, than when you started. But you're not content with where you are. You want to be more and more like Him. There's, there's, there's a sense in which it's like, yeah, I know I'm more mature, but I haven't attained I need to press on. I need to run this race with endurance until Christ calls me home. And so we experience this in our own lives, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is true for all Christians. And so there's a positional righteousness, there's a practical righteousness, but then there's also the person of righteousness. And I've already, I've already, I can't, I can't, I brought it in already, spoiler, I already got it in there, but it's it's Jesus. We're not seeking after something, just this, loosely defined term of righteousness, we're seeking after someone, right? We're seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, says that Jesus Christ has become unto us wisdom from God and righteousness. And this is the promise of the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 6 says, the Lord is our righteousness. Jesus Christ is is the Christian's righteousness. So the Christian is not just seeking after obedience to God to be obedient to God. He's seeking after, she is seeking, we are seeking after a person. We're seeking after the God-man. We're seeking after Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's this hungering and thirsting here for righteousness. Positional, we're already righteous. Practical, we long to be more like Christ because we long to be with Christ who is himself our righteousness, okay? And so that brings us to our, our last point here. Here's the promise. Here's, here's what God guarantees to his people for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The promise is, is that they're going to be satisfied. They're going to be satisfied. See, I sat down with a friend. Yesterday he called me. He said, hey, come come join me. I'm about to have this aneurysm. And I read the text. I'm like, what, you're going to die? And he's like, no, 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 no. I just, I ha- I've got a process with you, man. And so I went and met him and, we start talking, and, and I've been forewarned by his girlfriend who I'd bumped into just a few minutes before that. And she's like, Just, you know, he's just going to want to process with you. I'm like, All right, all right, let's hear what he has to say. And so I'm sitting there, and it's a nice, nice private area, so we're not disturbed. And he, he just starts sharing with me things that have been happening in his life. This young man, he's probably 26, 27, uh, rough upbringing, uh, and he's become an insurance agent. And he's, he's done quite well for himself. And um, he's sharing with me things that are going on in his life. He, he just had his contract terminated uh, by an insurance company because he got fed up with, with some of their corporate policies, we'll call it. And so he leaves an $8,000 check on the table. And he's got another 20000 sitting there in December that he may or may not receive. And so he's moved from this insurance company to another insurance company. And there at that insurance company, he just has closed this $80,000 account. And so for him, that means somewhere in the range of eight to 10000 more dollars that he should receive that he's waiting to get paid on. And so at least from my perspective, I'm thinking, hey, you've got a good setup, man. You've got a girlfriend who's a, just a very nice gal, and you've got friends around you who want to see you succeed, and you're, you're being successful at work. You're very gifted at what you do. I mean, the numbers are there to back that up. And you know what he kept telling me? He just kept saying, John, I'm not happy. I just, I just want to find happiness. I just want to be happy. And it was so, um, well, I could could hardly contain myself. I started preaching to him. I probably shouldn't. I should have just shut up and listened more. I started preaching because I studied this passage. And this passage, what does it tell us? This is something that the commentators that, that Matt has read for this. This is something that he harped on. Blessed is the one to be envied. Happy is the one who hungers and thirsts, who seeks after, who desires not happiness, but righteousness. He's seeking happiness, and in seeking happiness, he's never going to find it. That's the deceitfulness of sin. It promises you one thing, slide of hand, it's no longer there. Seek happiness, seek happiness, and, and you'll, you'll get it. No, it, it's gone. He, he has everything that you could ask for, and especially where he came from. He should be so thankful, and he is. But he's not content there. He's not happy there. He has not experienced what Jesus here promises to the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He doesn't have satisfaction. He can't enjoy what he has. He keeps shooting himself in the foot. He keeps making these bonehead mistakes and, and getting upset with people that there's no reason to be upset with him over if he would just stay the course. But he's seeking after happiness and he's never going to find fulfillment in doing that. He has to seek for righteousness. In just a chapter, Jesus is going to say, "You can only serve two, or you can only serve one master. You can't serve God and money. <coughs> Choose one. Whatever the other thing is, there's only one that's going to satisfy. It's God. And our responsibility as Christians is to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And what's promised, and all these other things will be added to you. Okay, that's not the prosperity gospel. That's just God promising to provide for His people for their needs, not necessarily their wants. There's no promise for that." But needs will be met. Needs will be met. Satisfaction will be experienced. You know, one of the curses found in Ecclesiastes for the one who lives apart from God and, and lives life under the sun is that they're given wealth. This is true in his life. But they're not given the power to enjoy it. So he has it. He's, he's grasped hold of it. But it's fleeting. It's, it's gone. He's seeking happiness but he can't find it. But Jesus is telling us here how we find happiness, how we find satisfaction, how we enjoy those good things that he's given to us. Don't seek them. Seek righteousness. I was speaking with a gentleman today who's in this marketing group with me. He's got this Tesla. I don't know how much Teslas cost. I think they're kind of expensive, but you know, you know what he was telling me? They don't even need keys. The, the, Teslas don't need keys. You just have your phone. You just, you just walk up, you get in the car. And then you don't turn the car on. You just touch, touch the gas. It goes zero to 60 in four seconds. <laughs> zero to 60 in four seconds. You don't even have to turn the car on. You just touch the gas and boom, you're off. In addition, he's got this little Apple watch and he just touches it. And when he gets out to his car, air conditioning's on. Because there's no engine. It's just a battery. So he's got this air conditioned climate. He can just sit in the meeting and boom, it's there. You know what he told me? He said, two months from now, this car's going to have an update. And I can just be sitting here at the table and doot doot doot. And the car will pull up front for me. Now, it's really tempting to look at that and say, I want that. Okay, financially, I'm not going to get there for maybe ever. But it's, you know, I want that. But no, no. See, the, the, the lie, the trick, the deceitfulness of sin is that we seek after that. And what, is this man, is he more happy because he has it? No. Happy is the man. Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts, who seeks after, who desires righteousness, conformity to Christ, obedience to God's word. He is the one who is satisfied. He is the one who is blessed, to be envied, who has enjoyment to the things that he possesses, of the good gifts of God. Now, I must say that there is a paradox here that I think all of us have experienced, because even as the Christian experiences satisfaction, satisfaction in this life there's a sense in which we're left longing for more right yes we are becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ practically yes positionally we are already perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ but we're still experiencing this holy discontentment in our lives and so if you've been coming to NBC for a while and, and maybe you know, let's say 10 years you've you've seen a church that has gone through some hard things and a church that I maybe people are wondering where is this church going to be in 10-15 years and um, just to think about where we are we've got this Bible study going on Wednesday nights you know multiple people teaching God's word we've got Pastor Nate we've got an incredible pastoral staff we're preaching God's word faithfully from week to week you know we had VBS here there's 130 volunteers who came to serve at our church that's more And some people have their entire church, and we have that many people volunteering. God is doing a mighty work at NBC. We should praise him. We should thank him for that. We should enjoy it. We should be thrilled by that. At the same time, we have to have this holy discontentment that we have not yet arrived. We're not there. There's still work to be done. There are still neighbors across the street who haven't heard the Lord Jesus Christ, or if they have heard, they don't believe in him. And God's wrath is still upon them. There's friends and family members in our life who we know who don't know the Lord Jesus. And so, yes, there's a satisfaction as we pursue, as we seek after righteousness, but there's a sense in which until we are in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ, when God has set all things right, when he has destroyed all evil, cast it into the lake of fire, into the pits of hell, and he's created a new heaven and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells, then we will experience perfect satisfaction. And this promise will be completely fulfilled. But until that time, there's always this sense for us as Christians of a holy discontentment. We're always left wanting a little bit more. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's really good. You know, I I don't know. I, so here's, here's a rule for, for people that, that preach. You're not supposed to use personal examples. But I, I I I'm going to share this example. I'm breaking the preaching rule, okay? So stone me afterwards, all right? But Spurgeon said pastors should keep their sermons so that when they're older and they look back, they can weep over them. And I can tell you that that uh, after I preached a sermon, I thought to myself, man, that went really well. I'm really happy with how that went. And then maybe I went back and listened to it, or started thinking about it more, and I'm like. What was I doing? I missed so many opportunities. That's not even preaching, John. That's awful. I'm not asking for your mercy to come up afterwards and say, no, John, you're doing great. That'd be insincere. That'd be insincere. And when I listen to someone like Steve Lawson or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul or some of the other great men of God that God has raised up in the last 500 years that we, we can have access to through either radio or, or some sort of multimedia source or books, and you read them and it's like, oh my why do I even bother? Why don't I just read these guys to the folks here tonight? Why don't I just read Lloyd Jones' Lloyd Jones's sermon on this? It'd take about 25 minutes rather than 35. No one would fall asleep. Why, why do we bother? You know, there's this discontentment. But then also at the same time, there's such satisfaction in just being able to preach God's word and personally. And, and, I, and I pray that you'd be blessed by that as well. You know, so there's this, there's this paradox of being satisfied and yet always left wanting more until Christ Jesus returns. And I think that's because, again, in the book of Ecclesiastes, God tells us that he's put eternity in our hearts. And until we are satisfied, until we are perfectly right with God, that is when we have all sin removed from us, and we are in perfect union with him, and he is our God, and we are his people in glory in heaven, then that that longing is fulfilled. Then that satisfaction is complete. And there will be no more hungering and thirsting because that which we've longed for will be fulfilled. Okay. I think we've, we've got enough time here. So let me say one more thing on this point. Has anyone in here listened to the song by John Newton, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow? Because this just comes by a way of a little bit of a warning for us here and how the Lord can work in our life. Okay, so this, I'm going to try and quote the song for you here. Okay, this is John Newton writing. He, he writes this, I ask the Lord that I might grow. In faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and so I trust he's answered prayer, and this is the kicker, but has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. Okay, so he prayed because he hungered and thirsted after Righteousness. But here's how God answered that prayer. Here's how he experienced God's satisfaction in his life. Here is how the Lord might answer this in our own lives. So I just want you to not be discouraged. I just want you to be warned, forewarned, potentially here. It's dangerous to pray this way. We need to pray this way, but it's dangerous. Because then he goes on to say, I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. That is, he'd become more like Christ in his obedience. Instead of this, he says, he made me feel, God made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. God, rather than making John Newton the author of Amazing Grace, a man who experienced amazing grace in his life. Rather than him seeing more and more conformity to Christ in his own life as he hungered and thirsted for righteousness, he was shown his unrighteousness. He was brought back to the spot of being poor in spirit. God humbled him. That's what led him to write that song. So just be forewarned. This is a dangerous prayer to pray because God wants this for us. But how God goes about accomplishing that in our lives may not align with the fanciful ideas of what we think that should look like. Okay, so just by warning. But that being said, I, I pray for us. I've been praying for us. And I, I hope all of you will be praying that we would, as a people, as a church here, hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let's close down with three points of application real quickly here. Number one, I mean, if anyone's thinking it, I totally understand it. How do I know that I'm hungry and thirsting for righteousness? Where are the indications of my life? Well, if you're here tonight... More than likely, you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You're going above and beyond. And, and it would not have been so in past centuries for the church, but it is in 21st century America, custom to only go to church for an hour on Sunday morning. But you're here tonight. You're here tonight. You want to know God's word. You're hungry and thirsting after righteousness. That's a really good indication, brothers and sisters. Now, if you were drugged here by your spouse... Maybe that might be a different story, and in that case, more seriously, I would just I would just ask you, what what's your prayer life like? What when's the last time you prayed that you'd be more like the Lord Jesus? What are you seeking after in your life? You know, I, I played a board game last week, last Tuesday. I played from seven thirty to twelve thirty, and I lost that game. And all I could think about the next morning, on four hours of sleep, is how I wanted to to go back and play that game, and I was re-strategizing all my moves, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get my friend next time we play. I was guilty of idolatry before I even knew it. As I prepared to preach the sermon, I wasn't hungry and thirsting for righteousness. I was hungry and thirsting after a stupid game. So what are we longing for? You know, that grabbed hold of my heart and my mind in an instant, in five hours, but I mean, it happened quick. So what are, what are we longing for? Is it that's what That's what's blessed that's what is being expected is being commanded of us it's it's a hungering and thirsting it's a desire it's a seeking after the lord jesus is that what our lives are marked by and if it's not then we need to repent we need to come back to the lord jesus we need to turn to him we need to seek him okay so that's number one how do you know number two John, I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I'm seeking the Lord Jesus in my life, but I'm not experiencing satisfaction. What's going on? Okay, and so here's what here's what my wife would say. My wife would say, when I'm working with maybe a hammer or a drill or something, and I'd say, Hun, this this tool's not working. And she'd say, John, the problem's not the tool, it's the operator. And similarly, here in this circumstance, if you're not experiencing satisfaction in your own life, that's likely an indication not that God is failing you, but that you in some way are failing God. That is that you are not living in light of this promise. And again, the example of the board game, I experienced such a a lack of contentment following that where I just had to go back and play it and I was researching the stupid game and just wanting to, to spend hard earned money on a, on a game like that, and I, I may still very well buy it, but I'm not you know, obsessing over it at this point. Well, if we're, well, just look at the text. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and other things. No, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is an exclusivity. Christ. There's a singularity in seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus here is promising. God will bless and the person will be satisfied. The one who seeks after Christ alone. Okay. And so if you are hungry and thirsting after righteousness, you want to be more like the Lord. And yet you're not experiencing the satisfaction. You're not finding the Lord meeting that desire in your life. You may very well be revealing to you areas of, of idolatry. Areas where there are other things competing for your affections with the Lord Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing to be shown that and ask, ask the Lord to reveal that to you. That'd be the second thing. And then lastly, as we wrap up our time together this evening, I want to end with a word of encouragement, a comment rather than a question. You'll notice here that the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who perform righteousness. Okay. And so I don't want to minimize our obedience. No, we need to obey. And if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will obey. But please understand that Jesus Christ is not so much concerned with our outward display as our inward desires. I mean, that's, that really cuts to the heart. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Beatitudes, he's dealing with the issues of the heart. He's speaking to his disciples in light of the Pharisees, who are all about external displays. He says, no, no, I'm not concerned about your external displays of righteousness. I'm concerned about your inward disposition, primarily, primarily. Where is your heart? Jesus, you know, Jesus wants us to desire him above all other things. He wants to be the pearl of great price in our in our life. The one, the treasure that we would sell everything for so that we could have him. That's that's what he wants for us. That's what we should want too. That's where we'll find satisfaction ultimately is Is in him. And so just, you know, tonight, wherever we are in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want you to leave being encouraged that it doesn't matter if you are as mature as a brother and sister in, in Christ in this room or in the church or a friend. You know, if you desire to be more like Christ, that's what God is concerned about. What is the condition of your heart? What do you long for? What do you want in your life? That's the most important thing in our lives. And as we desire the Lord Jesus, we will become more like the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together tonight in your word. And um, it's scary to, to pray this and I know I've been confronted with my own apathy and pride uh, in preparing for this sermon and so I just repent of those things and I, I just pray for us and I pray for our church and I pray for the church in America that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness that we'd be zealous for good works that we'd be marked by a fervency and an urgency and our walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ because it seems to me that we are filled and I am filled continually with apathy as entertainment and business and other pursuits, which are good in and of themselves, but in the proper measures, drown out, choke out the word of God and the love of God in our lives. Please set us free from these things that we'd hunger and thirst to be more like your son, that we desire him, that we'd have to have him so great would our love be for him, and that we'd experience this promise, O God, that the one who desires this, you're pleased to bless with it. Thank you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know we've been taking time